So um, I'm going to grab this. I can go in here. I have been working full-time for 25 years. I just realized that as I was doing, doing the prep for this sermon this morning, that I've been working for 25 years full-time. Now, when I was a kid, I had several career choices that I felt uh, as if were calling me. People talk about their calling. I felt I had uh, two callings, really. The first was to be a uh, gas station attendant. And uh, I had a very big, strong desire to be a gas station attendant. And the second was to be a singer. Um, I had been inspired by Barry Manilow in the 70s, and uh, you know, it blows my cool guy image. But, uh, you know, I wanted to sing Old Mandy in front of the crowds. I wanted to be the guy that made the whole world sing. And uh, I achieved the gas station man um, dream in the summers of 83 and 84 at the Panther Valley Shell and decided that that was not all it was uh, made up to be. Um, never achieved the singing one, though. Uh, and much as I desire, the worship team to this day laugh at me when I say, well, why don't I come up and I'll sing? And uh, I'm never allowed to. But for 25 years now, I've been going to work every day, 50-some weeks a year. And on general, in general, like you, I've probably been working 40 to 60 hours a week for 25 years. In fact, it was 25 years in July. And I did the math on 25 years at just 40 hours a week, that means I've spent 52,000 hours working. 52,000 hours of my life I've spent at work. Amazing. Now, I've learned some things uh, in the 52,000 hours. I'm not the brightest star in the sky, but you'd have to be somewhat dense to spend 52,000 hours doing anything and not learn something. So here's what I learned over the 52,000 hours. I've I, I learned some stuff about finance because it was in the finance area. Uh, my son is a, is a junior. He's trying to get a job in, in the finance industry. So he calls me you know, once a week, and he's going on interviews, and he'll say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I'm able to share some, some of the 52,000 hours of experience with him. I've learned some stuff about ministry. I've been doing ministry for about 10 or 12 years now on a, on a kind of full-time basis. So uh, I've learned some stuff, some tools of the craft that maybe I could hopefully share with people. Uh, I've learned some things. The truth is I've had good jobs and I've had bad jobs. But there's one thing that has made the job either good or bad, which is more significant than any other thing. Here's the number one lesson. This is true. I, I thought a lot about this this week. In the 52,000 hours I've worked, there's one thing I know to be true more than anything else. And I tell, I, I'll tell my kids this. I'll, t I'll tell you. You should tell your kids this. If you can... To the best degree possible, under every circumstance, do not take a job surrounded by negative people. Have you ever had a job surrounded by negative people? Uh, I can't stand it. Now, I've had, like I said, good jobs and bad jobs, but I, when I look back, it really wasn't the job that was good or bad. The job was kind of indifferent. Heck, in hindsight, it really wasn't the income that mattered all that much. I can't specifically tell you how much I was making when I had this or that job. But what mattered the most in my observation was how much, how much I liked being there, how happy I was in the job. It was really dependent on who I was working with, how happy those people were. Now, if you're on the staff at Mendham, you know uh, after these 25 years, I, I have a little say now in who I get to work with. So one of the things we talk about in our staff is, like, we are not hiring people that are grousers and complainers, and I just can't do it. I, 
I don't care if you're talented and competent. This is going to sound somewhat radical. I don't care if you're godly. You need to be godly. But godly is not just enough. Like, you need to have some, some happiness and some joy about you. Have, I, when, I, when I come to work in the morning, when I think of the staff we have at church, I'm excited to be with them and, and see what's gone on in their lives and how their weekend was. And, and, and we talk about it and we laugh. Like, you know, if you walk in sometimes, you'll see us. We're just like cracking up. And we're having a great time. These are in many ways. We're working hard, but these are the good old days. Versus when you're working with people that are miserable people. And you know when you're driving to work and you get that feeling, you're like, uh, I know I'm going to stink as soon as I walk in. And he's going to tell me you know, all these negative things and how bad. And see, we know this. Like, we like being around people that are happy. And we don't like being around complainers and people that are just negative all the time. We run towards people that are happy, and we avoid people who are the gossipers and the malcontents. Now, what's interesting, as I've been studying this, is there's a lot of science. You should go home and work on this sermon. It probably needs some work. But you should go home and work on it, because there is so much. I'm, I, I think we may have discovered something really quite, quite incredible. There's a lot of science around what Paul's writing to us this morning. It's going to blow your mind. There's a lot of study in the last 10 years Prior to this, there hadn't been a lot of study. But in the last 10 to 15 years, there's a lot of science around happiness because it's what we're all chasing. Scientists for many years, social scientists, had been studying what it is that makes people miserable. But now there's been a lot of study on the inverse. Why people, what is it about them that makes them happy? Now, what science will tell you is that each of you, just like with you know, intelligence or skin color or, or body shape, you have individually been born into kind of a happiness state. For some of us, our natural happiness state is 2. For some of us, out of 10. For others of us, it's 8 out of 10. So all of us have a different kind of quotient that we have, that we've born into. But what the social scientists also tell you is that there are things that move your happiness chart. So the question for us, as we're looking at it, and as a church, we're studying what Paul has to say about this in this letter to Philippians, this so-called letter of joy. What is it that we can discover from Paul that would bring us what it is that we say we want to give our lives to, what we, what we say we want? Now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know that the, the key to understanding this letter is Paul is writing it from a prison cell, likely in Rome. He's probably in a hole. He's been beaten bruised and starved. In fact, most of the letter is really a thank you note written back to this church at Philippi that it sent somebody with food. You'll see that next week when you come for Stephen Trafton. He will make this letter come alive. But, but Paul's writing, and he's writing probably chained 18 inches away from a Roman, a Roman jailer or with his legs in feet stockades, and he writes them a letter all about happiness. In fact, in a four-chapter book, you can read Philippians in 10 minutes. In a four-chapter book, 14 times he uses the word joy or joyfully. Makes no sense. So over the first couple weeks, we've been looking at what Paul is showing us because he says to the Philippians, don't just hear what I'm writing to you. These things you've seen in me, he says, put into practice. So we're trying to see what it is we can see in them and put those things into practice. Now today I'm going to give you what I think is the key to the whole letter, and I'm going to be bold enough to say maybe it's the key to the whole life that you have spent so much of these hours of your life giving it to Here's the question. If I can show you something that is the key to what you are giving your life away to, if I can show it to you biblically, 
And if I can show it to you scientifically, would that be enough for you to change the way you live your life? It's a really deep question. So let's jump into the letter. Paul is sitting in a, in a jail cell, and he writes to this church that he loves in Philippians. He starts in chapter 2. He says, therefore, to the church at Philippi, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, he says, make my joy complete. My joy. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Remember this. Remember this one saying? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to... This is about your relationship in here. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing, and he took on the, the nature of a servant, and he was made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, this Jesus, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even the embarrassment of death on a cross. And therefore, Paul writes from jail, God exalted this Jesus to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every other name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says, because of these things, therefore, my dear friends, relationship, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Not only, I, I've gotten word back on you guys, not only have you, been, have you obeyed when I was there and watching over you. In fact, this is actually the opposite of what he writes in other letters where he's like, don't make me come over to that church. This time he's saying, not only have you obeyed when I was there, you've obeyed, you how much more in my absence have you obeyed? He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you uh, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now Nancy's going to put up verses 14. Or verse 14 through 18. Paul continues. What is it that we don't like about working with negative people? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Remember, who wants to be around these kind of people? So that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And when you do this, when you act like this, when you see these things that you've seen in me and you put them into practice, then you will shine among this generation like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'm going to be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run uh, or labor in vain. You will become Paul's boast, he says to the church at Philippi. And here's the verse for this morning. Here's what we're going to kind of sit on for this morning. But... Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, even if I'm, I'm giving my life, even if I'm dying, I'm glad. And I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad. Rejoice with me. 
Paul says as he sits in the hall, my life's being poured out like a drink offering, yet I'm glad. Even as my life is going away, even as my life is, is, is being given away, even as my life is being taken away, it's okay. In fact, I'm happy about it. You should be happy about it with me. What? Why? Paul, are you happy given this set of circumstances? Paul actually writes something quite similar to, to uh, his partner in ministry, Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy, he goes, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship because it's going to be hard. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. Paul is getting, uh, getting ready to die. He's going to be martyred for the cause of Christ. He goes, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. If you remember week one in this Thrive series, what does Paul say will enable you to get through any circumstance is if you believe the work of God and you're involved in it and he's going to complete it. Looking ahead can get you through anything. Paul's saying, look, I'm about to get killed, but now look what is ahead for me. It's a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul's saying that his life is being poured out. But having your life poured out is not unique to Paul. To Paul. You see, your life is being poured out too. Now what Paul says is, he says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering on an altar. It's being given over to something. See, your life's being poured out. It's being given over to something. You only have one life, right? You have a lot of time. It's being poured out. It seems like just, I told somebody the other day, I said, my life seemed like it was going really slow until I put my first baby on the, on the school bus for kindergarten. And then it's like, it just, it's like a, 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 a fire hose. It's not being, it's not like, simply dripping out. It's just, it's just being poured out. So the question for you and I is, Paul's not unique in what he's saying. He's saying, my life is being poured out. The question is, is your life being poured out on the altar of something that has some significance, or is your life being spilled on a different altar? Because everybody's life is being poured out. Most of us, if we're honest, I put some thought into this. Most of us, the truth is, pour ourselves out, pour these years out, for me, 52,000 work hours already, in the pursuit and on the altar of happiness. The chase of happiness is at our core. Your mommy and your daddy just want you to be happy. This country is founded on life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And we pour ourselves onto this altar, pursuing happiness. But what Paul discovered as he sits in a hole, and what social scientists actually have discovered a couple hundred years ago, but which nobody told me about, is something called the paradox of happiness, or put my, or if you wanted to Google at home, 
the paradox, this is great, the paradox of hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. My premise is that you and I are giving our lives, pouring them out like a drink offering on the pursuit of happiness. Yet there is at work, Paul would say, and social scientists would say, a paradox called the paradox of happiness or the paradox of hedonism. And it is this, the paradox is this, the more you pursue happiness, the more you chase after it, the more you try to get it, the less you will ever have it. It's fascinating stuff. Social scientists have been talking about this for hundreds of years. This paradox of hedonism says, I will never be happy. You will never be happy if the ultimate goal for your life is to be happy. Yet what have we said the ultimate goal of our lives are? What have we told our children all I want for you is? We sentence our children to a lack of a happy life because we told them to pursue a happy life. You will never be happy if the ultimate goal of your life is for you to be happy. See, happy is a feeling, is emotion that comes as a byproduct when you're pursuing something else, something bigger or something better. This is the key to this whole letter that Paul is talking about. This is really the key to what you're spending your life on. If you hear nothing this morning, hear this. Happiness... Happy is one of those things that comes as a byproduct when you're pursuing something else, something bigger, something better, something grander. There is, it turns out, something that is much more important and more significant in your life. Stras, hand me under that chair as a red marker. Um, there is something much more important to your life than happiness. Paul discovered it. He's writing about it. How is it that I'm happy? I'm pouring my life out as a drink offering. There is a difference between people who pursue happy and people who pursue a life of meaning. This is fascinating stuff, okay? If you don't have a job, what is it that you say will make you happy? A job. Who has a job? Are you always happy? Once, see, getting that job, in fact, I was just talking to Amarita this morning in the first service, and Amarita just became like a uh, x-ray tech type person, and I had seen her the day she graduated, and she got her job, and she was so excited down at Taylor's, she's a young, beautiful young girl, just married, so excited, I can't wait, I got my new job, I just graduated school, I saw her this morning, I said, how's it going? She's like, well, it provided a moment of happiness, <laughs> and then it became a job, right? See, a job will make you happy, but for a short amount of time. Now, once you, so, so you, you have a change in your happiness in index, but how quickly does it fade? Pretty quick. Now, once you have a job and you get to be about my age, and you start to go, you know, I only got about 15 or 20 more years of this I have to, to, to do, you start to look forward to what? Retirement. So they studied retirement and its impact on happiness, right? So if I were going to retire, what does retirement do to my happiness index initially? It goes up. This is awesome. You mean I get to sit around and collect Social Security and like go to the beach? This couldn't be better. However, what happens to meaning in retirement? It tends to go down. When I got a job, I was happy for a moment, but the happiness went away. However, it created in my life, it did give me some meaning and some purpose. Kids, we all want kids, right? 
I can't wait to have kids. I remember when Joan and I were young and we had uh, Courtney, and maybe it was Courtney and John, and we were up at our mom's house. I remember saying this. This is the voice of ignorance. I remember saying this, and we were up in her family's home in Pennsylvania, and we had these two beautiful little children, and they weren't very expensive at the time yet, really at all. And I remember saying to Joan and to her parents, I said, I don't understand how people ever stop having children. <laughs> right? So my happy index with kids, now Steve and Melissa have Kobe over there. I see Steve every morning. His happy index is not that high. <laughs> in fact, he's told me, in words I can't say at church, like, what's going on over there at that house? He said, I hate this stage. You know, this is tough. I'm not sleeping. I got thrown up on all night. So we think they've studied this. If we have a kid, our happiness index will go up. But guess what happens when you have a happiness, or when you, uh, when you base on a kid? Has anybody had a 16-year-old? There, there is misery involved in this at levels that are unseen, unknown. That's why they don't tell you when you have them. However, what happens to meaning in your life when you have children? Meaning goes through the roof. On the meaning index, something happens to you. The joy of my life is my kids. But it doesn't mean I'm happy all the time. How about money? We can, let's, can we just cut through the kind of the, the BS? We all, I know we say we don't believe it. We all think that money will buy us happiness. I know you all heard the saying, oh, it won't buy you happiness. We don't believe it. We do believe it will buy us happiness. We say it. I'm not sure we believe it. So we pursue money. We pursue the promotion. We pursue the stock dividend. We pursue whatever it is to get this money because it will provide for us happiness. And when you get that check in the mail, when you go and you buy that lottery ticket, when you hit those four numbers or six numbers, what happens to your happiness index when you hit those numbers? Oh, it goes off the chart. I just won $10,000. I couldn't be happier. They did a study on five, four, years after, uh, four years after winning the lottery over people that won all kinds of different amounts. It, had no, it, it didn't matter what amount. They looked at people that won a lot of money and a little money. And you know four years later what the difference in happiness level was? None. No impact on their happiness. We spend our life chasing it. We say we want happiness. But all the things that you chase after, all the things that I chase after, it's like somebody told me if I got this or I got that or I got, I got the white hat, what, right wife and the right job and my kids did well in school. They do provide momentary happiness. But happiness is this fleeting emotion that just runs from you. See, when it gets to the end of your life, it turns out that it wasn't happiness that mattered. It was meaning. Because God created you, the scriptures would teach. God created you. So that as you grow in meaning, as, you, as God changes your life and puts you on a bent towards the kingdom of God, towards serving this God, serving the least of these, serving one another, as you do that, your life increases in meaning and you get joy. Remember the paradox of happiness. If you pursue happiness, you'll never get it. But if you pursue something bigger, something grander, social scientists understand it, you'll find joy. So Stanford University released a widely quoted study on the difference between the happy life and the meaningful life. 
totally secular study. So fascinating. Nancy, let's start with, they had two findings at the end of this. These findings are fantastic. We're spending our lives, pouring our lives, all these hours on the pursuit of happiness. Stanford University studied between meaning and happiness. Uh, slide two, Nance. Our findings suggest that happiness is mainly about getting what one wants and needs, including from other people, or even just by using money. See, my relationship with you is just so I can get what I need from you. In contrast, meaningfulness was linked to doing things that express and reflect the self, and in particular, doing positive things for others. Meaningful involvement increases one's stress and worries and arguments and anxiety. If you have kids, you have meaning, but do you have stress and worry and anxiety and problems? Of course. They momentarily reduce happiness. Spending money to get things went with happiness, but managing money was linked to meaningfulness. This is not scripture, but it sounds like it. Happiness went with being, ta being a taker more than a giver, while meaningfulness was associated with being a giver more than a taker. Whereas happiness was focused on feeling good right now. Meaningfulness integrated past and present and future, and it sometimes meant feeling bad right now. Past misfortunes reduce present happiness, but they're linked to higher meaningfulness, perhaps because people cope with them by finding meaning. See, happiness is just about everything that you've been told you want is really just about getting something right now, using money to get it or using people to get it. Now, whatever study I showed this, I read a lot of these studies. They're really fascinating. There was one, there was one brilliant guy that stood up and he gave a TED talk. And at the end, the guy said, you need to come back up and share this one statistic. He said, this statistic will blow everybody away. And the demographic of guys listening to TED talks are fairly successful people. And the guy got up and he said, uh, oh yeah, he said, statistically, we've been studying happiness and income, um, income levels on happiness. And he said, in the United States of America, he said, I, in all of my research, I've never seen a flatter line. He said, in the United States of America, once you get above $60,000 in income, there is no discernible impact on your happiness, no matter how much money you make above that. You could make $600,000 a year. You are no happier than the guy making $60,000 a year. And this professor said, I've never seen a flatter line. Because there's this element of we need to have our needs met, certainly, and these are the things that God promises us. But once you get above that, you're not going to get any happier than with what you had. Now, you see, biblically and sociologically, what you're starting to see played out is there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is all about your current circumstances. What's happening to me right now? Joy isn't based on your present circumstance, but on something much deeper. In fact, even the secular guides are saying there's something about joy that it's much more profound, much more spiritual in nature, something you can have even amidst stress and worry. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, did Jesus have stress and anxiety and worry in the garden? You bet he did. Right? Ble capillaries are breaking from the stress. Did Jesus have joy in the garden? But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Paul, in the pit of a Roman cell, as he writes this letter, does he have happiness as he hasn't eaten? Does he have happiness as, as rats are licking at his wounds? Probably not. Does he have joy? He writes this letter and he says 14 times, I can't tell you how happy I am, how, how much joy I have. We can't confuse those two emotions. The pursuit of happiness, when you pursue happiness, you never get it. 
joy, you can have joy amidst every circumstance in your life. Check out the ending of this Stanford study. This is so great. Positive psychology has made great strides in learning about how to cultivate happiness. We've learned how to make people momentarily happy, they said. Although it's hard to dispute the appeal of happiness, everybody wants happiness, recent work has begun, this is not the Bible, recent work has begun to suggest downsides of valuing and pursuing happiness, as well as benefits from unhappy and negative feelings. Clearly, happiness is not all that people seek, and indeed, the meaningful but unhappy life is in some ways more admirable than the happy but meaningless one. Maybe we should stop telling our kids all we want for them is to be happy and start telling them all we want for you is to live a meaningful life. They continued, this is great. Although humans use money and other cultural artifacts to achieve satisfaction, the essence of happiness would still consist in having needs and wants satisfied. I underline this in my notes. The happy person, the person that pursues happiness, that makes it the altar on which they pour out their lives, the happy person thus resembles an animal. Stanford University. With perhaps some added complexity. In contrast, Meaningfulness pointed to more distinctively human activities, such as expressing oneself and thinking integratively about your past and your future. Put another way, humans resemble many other creatures in their striving for happiness. You're no different than your dog when you make happiness the altar on which you pour out your life. But the quest for meaning is the key part of what makes us humans, and uniquely so. Paul a hole in the ground, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming for your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you should be glad and you should rejoice for me. Paul said, look, I'm not temporarily happy right now, but I have found joy in pouring myself out for you, pouring myself with you. He used this term drink offering. You don't see the term drink offering in the scriptures a lot. We don't talk about uh, drink offerings in, in the Bible a lot. But a drink offering, he says, I'm pouring myself out as a drink offering on top of your sacrifice. We, we always stop that verse, I've been poured out like a drink offering. But it actually says, I'm pouring myself out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. The drink offering in the Old Testament was to be poured out on top of a sacrifice that had been made. You didn't just go into the temple and offer God a drink offering. You went into the temple and the priest would offer a sacrifice and then a drink offering would be poured on top of it. Paul, in effect, is saying to this church in Philippi that he loves, that had sacrificed so much for him, I'm giving my life up to you. As you give yours away to God, I'm giving mine, I'm pouring my life, I'm pouring my life on your life and together we're giving ourselves to God as offerings to God. Now there's different thoughts on the purpose of a drink offering. What was, what was it for? But one of them which just struck me was that the thought was when the drink offering was poured over the burning sacrifice on the fires, it created a smoke which became a pleasing fragrance as it rose up to God. Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, I am pouring myself out, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering on top of your, if I'm adding my sacrifice to your sacrifice, what is it bringing before our God and what is it doing in terms of I am happy, it's fine, I'm glad, rejoice with me. Paul is showing us 
that in his relationships with this church that was special to him, that hadn't abandoned him, that had sent him food, that this relationship was what he was willing to give his life to, and that in pouring his life out for them, and on top of their sacrifice, it was joyful and meaningful and worthy of his life and pleasing to God. If you go, there is a UN, you know there's like a UN council or study on happiness? Everybody's looking it up. The United Nations is spending a lot of, mostly our money, on trying to figure out what makes people happy. And if you do the research, and I spent a lot of time doing the research, all of the studies come back with a couple of things. I'm telling you, this is what Paul said, and this is what the science says. Money, position, authority, possessions, they will not, even though we've said it before, they will not make you happy. Do you know what what scientifically is the number one predictor of happiness in your life? Relationships. Deep, meaningful relationships. Not I got 10 buddies that I drink beer with and watch the, the Cowboys game. I have a friend of mine, and we went, to, we went to Rutgers together. I didn't know him when we went to Rutgers. He lived a floor below me. But he became an attorney, and he did very well for himself. And in my old life, um, he used to document all the transactions um, that we would do. And he became partner. He is a partner at a very large law firm here in New Jersey. And I don't talk to him as much uh, anymore because I'm not in that world. In fact, when I do call him, he jokes. He goes, oh, you must need something. And uh, unfortunately, he's usually right. That's when I'm calling him. But we went out to lunch this week. We went out to lunch two years ago. And he said the same thing to me this week that he said to me two years ago. He goes, why are you so happy? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know. You're always, he goes, I love being, I'm not touting myself up, all right? I don't mean it like, you know, aren't I great? But he's going, every time I, you're always happy. Like, what? And I said, well, you know, aren't you happy? And he said, he goes, you know, I'm not. And he's got a lot of money. He's got a big house, a big house. He's got a wife and two kids. And this isn't to say only those things are bad. But what my friend is telling me, and he told me Wednesday at a lunch that cost $100, was this stuff isn't making me happy. Why are you happy? And so I started talking to him about some of this research. I said, it's funny you ask me that because I've been working on this all week. And you know what this guy said? He's a kind of a big, kind of gruff businessman, attorney guy. And he said, you know why I'm not happy? He said, I have no relationships. He said, I have a wife and kids. And he goes, you know, that's, that's good. He said, but I have no relationships with any other man in my entire life that, uh, that goes beyond drinking beer and watching football games. He goes, I don't think it was meant to be that way. And the older I'm getting, the more I'm realizing I'm never going to be happy. I, it's a guy I care about. It was like sad. And then he said, can you, can you and Joan come, to, come to over to our house and talk to, talk to me more about this and come hang out with me and maybe we can build one of these relationships. And see, this is Paul is looking at the Philippian church saying, it doesn't matter my circumstances. What we've done together, how we've partnered, the way you've sacrificed for the kingdom, the way I'm pouring my life out on your sacrifice, I couldn't be happier. I heard this week there was a study in the Journal of Socioeconomics. They found that changes in people's income, and we all want changes in our income, right? You want to change, you want to feel like you got a big change in your income? Changing in people's income, monetary level, brings very little happiness. However, in this study, an increase in the level of relational involvement in your life, a deepening of connection and relationships, is worth then more than $100,000 a year in satisfaction. As we left that restaurant, 
I got in my beat up old 10 year old car and he got in his really expensive BMW. But I'm $100,000 richer because of some people like you guys. See, somebody lied to us. Satan, one of, one of the things that Satan has described in the scripture is the prince of the power of the air. It's as if we believe this in. And we, we're duped. And we, we pour our lives out, our entire lives, just trying to get more of something or, or have him or have her or have that. And it never brings us what we were looking for. Paul says, my life is being poured out, but it's not being wasted. It's being poured out with others, onto the sacrifices of others. I'm giving my life away in the service of Christ. And yeah, Paul would say, if somebody tells you this is going to be easy, and this is going to provide comfort, they're lying to you. But it doesn't matter to me, because I've got joy. Circumstances won't change that. He says, I'm giving my life away to something bigger and better and more meaningful, and I'm doing it with others. This is why getting into those relationships is so important, deeper relationships, where we serve the king together. This is why you need to get into those small groups. This is why you need to study the scriptures together. This is why the most meaningful discipleship tool that they've come across is shared missional experience together. This is what brings you happiness. This is what brings you joy. Pouring your life out. On other people, serving God is where you will find what you're looking for. So the question is this. Will you trust enough, will you believe enough to make moves in your life, to orient your life in such a fashion that its priorities move from the pursuit of temporary happiness brought through money and using people like an animal to serving God and pouring yourself into relationships with other people. The science tells you this is where it is. The Bible tells you this is where it is. It's found in Christ. This is where it's done. And you might say, but I don't know how to do that. How would I do that, John? I don't know. I don't, I don't have all the answers for you, but there, there's different things. I mean, you know, go pursue justice for somebody. My nephew is a, is a um, graduated from Penn State Law School about six or eight years ago. He went into the Army or Navy or Air Force, became a JAG officer. He's getting out. Uh, he's in Afghanistan right now. He's getting out next month. I just got a fundraising letter from him this week, and uh, it said, I'm going to serve widows and orphans in Africa with international justice mission. This kid has $100,000 in school debt. Amazing guy. Because he said, I found something that's more important than making money. I think I might really find some meaning over here. And if I find meaning, if I find meaning, if I'm pursuing Christ, I get it all. I get the joy. I get the happiness. Go pursue justice for someone. Go give a cold glass of water to somebody in despair in the name of Christ. Take someone who's last and make them first. Tutor a kid. Be a big brother. Go serve in Grace House guests amongst those that don't have a home. Pour your life into them. Help out with the kids upstairs in children's ministry. Give your money away in radical fashions that would make people stop and stare. Stop at a nursing home on your way home from work tomorrow night and tell me how much different you feel when you get back in the car to get to your house. You will see that it's true. You will see that it's true. And lastly this, the worship guys can start to come up. There is something pretty interesting about a drink offering that Paul compared his life to. He said, 
My life is like a drink offering. Now, the drink offering in the scripture was, was wine, strong wine, the scripture says, or oil. And they had representative things. The wine represented something, the oil represented something. But the most interesting thing about studying a drink offering was that a drink offering was, was always poured out onto a sacrifice, onto somebody else's sacrifice. And the proportion of the drink offering, listen up, the size of the drink offering was always relative to the sacrifice that had been made. The bigger the sacrifice, the bigger the animal in the Old Testament, the greater the amount of drink offering that needed to be poured out. The bigger the sacrifice, the greater the drink offering. And what Paul found in a pit in Rome was this. There is one who made a pretty big sacrifice. There is one who sacrificed for me position. There is one who has sacrificed on my behalf all authority. There is one who's come for me and sacrificed the heavenly realm. There is one who's come for you and I who sacrificed uh, intimacy with God. There is one who's come and sacrificed for me a crown of gold and exchanged it for a crown of thorns. Paul, in the, in, the, in the basement of this Roman jail, he would say, there is one that has sacrificed himself so greatly who didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped. There is one that exchanged exaltation for mockery. There is one that exchanged a throne for a cross and gave his life as a ransom for me and for you. And so the question remains to be answered this morning in the light of this truth, because the bigger the sacrifice bigger the drink offering. And so the question for me and for you is this. Your life, I got 52,000 hours into this already. Your life is being poured out. Is it simply being spilled? Or is it being poured out on the incredible sacrifice of Jesus? Father, would you open our eyes to truths that are before us, but that are so hard to see. In Jesus' name.